Hello and welcome to Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah and my poetic name is She Who Eats the Ice Cream While the Dusk Falls. I'm Kristen and I'm not sure what my poetic name would be, but it would probably be lowercase ee coming style, whatever it is. Oh, like it. I'm Caitlin and I would just be anonymous. And I'm Jeff Zentner, and I would be Jazz June. And that name comes from a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks, one of my favorite poets. It's a poem called We Real Cool, uh, one of my absolute favorite poems on earth. And one of the lines is, I'm going from memory here, from, from my 10th grade uh, African-American lit class. The line is, we jazz June, we die soon. So it sounds kind of dark. I just like the phrase jazz June. And I've uh, my initials are Jay-Z, which kind of sounds like jazz if you put it together. So that's my poet name. I, I probably put too much thought into this. You put so no, much that's thought. that's the best answer. I'm so impressed. <laughs> I love and that, that poem, poem too. It's a nice reference. Yeah. Well, and I mean, poetry takes that much thought. It's so much harder than, than prose. So much harder. <laughs> a big welcome to Jeff Zentner, the author of New York Times notable book, The Serpent King, Goodbye Days, Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee. And In the Wild Light, which comes out August 10th, which hopefully will be after or before this podcast releases. Am I right on that? It'll come. The podcast will come out the day after the book comes out. The point is, it's very exciting. It's basically here. So keep an eye out for that. Jeff, tell us about your upcoming book. All right. Well, uh, as you said, my upcoming book is called In the Wild Light. This is what the cover looks like. It's very uh, sunsetty looking or dawn looking, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, it is my Goodwill Hunting meets Dead Poets Society meets Looking for Alaska book. It's about two kids from rural East Tennessee, which is the Appalachian part of Tennessee. It's the mountainous part of Tennessee. And they live in a really economically depressed community called Sawyer, Tennessee, a small town. And uh, one of these kids is a genius. She, uh, she and her best friend like to go canoeing on the Pigeon River and they like to explore caves. And in one of these caves, she discovers a mold and she runs tests on it because she loves science and discovers that it has powerful antibiotic properties. So she sends it off to a scientist at Vanderbilt University who, who formally studies it and publishes results. And it, it makes this, uh, this girl sort of a minor celebrity. So this elite prep school in New Canaan, Connecticut called Middleford Academy, who's trying to build their STEM program, finds out about it. And uh, one of their alumni offers uh, this girl, Delaney is her name, Delaney Doyle, a scholarship, a full scholarship to attend this school. Well, Delaney will only agree to take the scholarship if they give one to her best friend, Cash Pruitt, as well. The story is told from Cash's perspective. Now, Cash has had a difficult life. His mother died of an overdose of opioids when he was young. He's being raised by his grandparents, his papa and mama, and he is afraid to leave them because his papa is dying of emphysema, and he's afraid that if he leaves and goes off to school that his papa will die without him being there for him. So um, it's, it's about his struggle. It's about his dealing with homesickness, identity. It's about him discovering poetry as a way to recontextualize and reshape the experiences of pain and fear that he's had in his life. And uh, yeah, so that's a little bit about In the Wild Light. I just want to say that I, I read it, I've already read it, and it is amazing, and you should absolutely go get this book. It is fabulous. I'm jealous you got a copy. That's so great. 
So today we'll be talking about something I don't think we've touched on before in this podcast, and that is poetry. And we'll talk about the how and why, how to include it in your fiction, why you should want to include it in your fiction. Um, And Jeff, we'd like to start with a question specifically for you. In the Wildlife features something new for you, if I understand, right? Poetry isn't something um, your other books had tackled. But what does poetry accomplish in the story that prose can't? Well, that's a really good question. Honestly, (laughs) I wrote the poems in this story so that they would be really easy to cut out if we needed to, because I was not confident in my ability as a poet. And so I, I put them in there so that if my editor said, you know what, Jeff, you're just not a poet. We just can't include these poems in this book because they suck too bad. In my first book, um, The Serpent King, my main character, Dill, is a songwriter. And even though I spent years and years of my life as a songwriter, I didn't feel confident enough in my songwriting abilities to include his lyrics in the book. I wanted him to be better than me uh, at songwriting. So I never included his lyrics in the book. But I figured within the wild light, all I needed to do was to be able to write like a plausibly promising high schooler who might be talented someday. So I I can't honestly claim that I think the poetry accomplishes a lot in this book uh, that prose doesn't. What the poetry in this book represents to me uh, I guess is is a real leap in me challenging myself. I think art is is most exciting when artists challenge themselves and artists step out of their comfort zones. And in many ways, I, I have a certain uh, comfort zone that I write in. I write stories about young people who are a lot like me, who live in Tennessee, which is where I live, uh, who live in the present day, which is where I live. So in many ways, I have that comfort zone. So I have to find ways to step out of that comfort zone. So I guess I'm coming around to answering your question in a better way, which is that for me, poetry in this book accomplishes me stepping out of my comfort zone better than making an all prose book would do at this point. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Um, just kind of from what you said, I mean, and Caitlin mentioned earlier that poetry is harder in a lot of aspects to write than prose. It almost seems like by by taking on the poetry it seems like that almost make writing the prose a little bit easier since you've stretched yourself in that way. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what it made me do. It made me build into the prose from the very beginning the groundwork for this character to be believable as a poet. So what I needed to do was to show the reader from the opening sentences of the book, this character is a poet, um, so that there is some tension, there is some struggle as we see him struggling with poetry, as we see him insisting to his poetry teacher at Middleford that he's not a poet, that you as the reader are going, what? Come, come on, Cash, yeah, do this, come on, you can do this. And so hopefully it's driving you as the reader along that I've, that I've laid those breadcrumbs so that it's plausible to you that he's going to come around to this frame of mind as a poet to this frame of, of being as a poet. Um, I feel like it's ve- it was very important to do that groundwork in this book so that his poetry didn't just kind of come out of the blue. Like, here's somebody who doesn't think about the world in a poetic way. He doesn't look at the world in a poetic way. And now all of a sudden he's writing these poems. Like, I just don't buy that. It had to be believable and, and organic and earned as a character. 
You know, that's something that I, I actually noticed as I was reading it, which is that the character feels things very, very deeply. And you get that from the very first page. And I feel like that's at its core what poetry does is it allows people to feel things very deeply that you can't get from big blocks of text. It very concisely states things that really like rock you all the way to your core. And I love that we get to see that happen to him where he can finally put some of those feelings into like concise words that actually represent him, which I thought that was so cool. Yeah, one of the things I love about poetry is its freedom from some of the constraints of prose in terms of concreteness. With poetry, you're really free to explore uh, metaphor in ways that you can't always with prose. You're free to explore certain abstractions, I guess, of imagery that can get you closer to the truth of something than a more straightforward description. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes... If I were to describe to you a sunset as, okay, so it's uh, really bright, getting a lot of orange, uh, a little pink in there, got a little, yeah, is that, that a little bit of violet in there? Okay. So I'm describing that to you, but that might not get you as close to the experience of me looking at a sunset and going, um, this is like God's bonfire. This is like a conflagration of every joy you've ever experienced. Like, doesn't that kind of get you closer to the experience of a sunset than me just sort of like uh, flatly and straightforwardly describing exactly what I'm seeing? For me, it does. For me, that's how I connect to poetry is on that level. So maybe we can next chat about how authors can get started in poetry. I know for a lot of us, it's not something that comes naturally. Um, Jeff, you mentioned it was, you know, stepping out of a comfort zone even for you. Um, so what can, what can authors do to, to start with poetry? Absolutely, absolutely just read poetry. I mean, that is where my education in poetry is all from. I've never had a poetry class. It's all just been reading poetry. It's been seeking out good poets. It can be a little hard to find good poetry, but fortunately, social media offers a lot of resources. Um, there's a really great Instagram page called Poetry is Not a Luxury, and they post several poems a day, and it's really well curated. So that's a really wonderful place to discover poetry. Um, and there's other social media places like that. There's Poem a Day that you can sign up for to get a poem delivered to your email inbox every day, which I've discovered some really great poets that way. Yeah, it, it, can, be, it can be tricky to get into poetry, but that's absolutely the best way to fall in love with poetry. And then you've got to just write it. You've got to just take a swing at it. You've got to take a crack at it. I think a really good poet to read for somebody who hasn't written poetry before is Mary Oliver. Her poetry is really beautiful and simple and, and filled with love and emotion. And there's this generosity of spirit in it that feels welcoming. It doesn't, she makes poetry not feel intimidating. Her poems are emotionally sophisticated and they're beautiful, um, but they never leave you feeling like this is something that is not for you to do. They never make you feel like an outsider. So if you're a beginner to poetry, I would highly recommend reading Mary Oliver, uh, highly recommend reading Jack Gilbert. They both have this kind of beautiful simplicity to their poems that I think will resonate to a beginning poet. You'll, you'll see that poetry doesn't have to be fancy. That's something that Mary Oliver says. It doesn't have to be fancy or complicated. I think it, it just has to be honest, and honesty will make it beautiful. 
I have a slight logistical question, um, just because I have I don't have a copy of In the Wild Light, so I don't really know how the poetry actually plays into it. But is it? Did you use poetry more as like a scene, or was it more like a like an interlude between scenes, if that makes sense? And like, what is the difference in making that choice? It's an interlude between scenes. It's kind of like an emotional punctuation mark that I would put at, at, at the end of kind of a scene or an idea I'm trying to express. So for example, toward the end of the book, as we are getting our farewells to the characters, there's a poem for, for each of the characters, except one character who got her poem earlier in the story. But um, so that's how I kind of use it is I kind of cap it off. Again, I didn't integrate it more into the text because I didn't know if I was going to pull it off. And I didn't want to have to go do a whole bunch of work like rebuilding the bones of the story after my editor took a sledgehammer to the uh, to the to the drywall of the book and, and cut out the poems. I'm, I really just uh, copped out by making it easy for myself to cut them out. Now I'll say this, this this uh this book has made me very brave and bold and I'm currently working on a verse novel with uh with a YA author friend of mine. She's 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 pretty well known. I'll bet you've heard of her. She's amazing. She's an amazing poet and uh we are writing a novel. We call it in verse and conversation because it's poems, but there's also dialogue because we both love writing dialogue. So there'll be poem poem, and then a scene that's just pure dialogue, and then poem, some more dialogue, poem. So that's kind of kind of how it goes, verse and conversation. I've never seen a book that does that. I'm sure we didn't invent it, but as of right now, based on my limited knowledge, it seems like it's the only one that's been. So if you're writing a book that's totally in verse or even in verse with moments of conversation, how do you approach that differently than you did just the poems that you put into In the Wild Light? So in a verse novel, the poems do have to be a little more concrete because they have to move the story forward. They can't be pure metaphor. They can't be pure imagery. There does have to be some concreteness to them. So for example, uh, I, I think Elizabeth Acevedo is the uh, the master of the, the verse Gosh, I novel. love her. Yeah, I know. Real controversial statement I'm making here. But um, <laughs> so I read Clap When You Land, which is which is phenomenal. But a lot of that book, if you just change change the spacing, it would just be really beautiful prose. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of the spacing mm-hmm. that makes it poetry. And it's it's to that extent kind of that you have to have the poetry moving the story forward. And and it's not necessarily going to be poems that stand on their own, like a collection of poetry. So a collection of poetry, you've got these poems that stand on their own. They, they stand as independent poems. And in, in a verse novel, you've got poems building on other poems that, that you know require the other poems as a foundation, as a prerequisite. So they don't necessarily stand on their own. So the verse novel is a really odd creature I'm finding. It's not a poetry collection. It's not obviously a traditional novel. It, it's really its own thing. And the interesting thing about it is it really only exists in uh, youth literature. There are a few adult verse novels that I'm aware of, but not very many, and certainly not um, to, the, to, to the quality that you get in YA and middle grade. There are just some absolutely phenomenal verse novels in YA and middle grade. I think The Poet X is one of the first books that ever made me like 
actually cry. Like, I don't cry very often. Well, I actually am very easily made to cry, but not by books. But that one just totally took me out. I love I love You her. must have escaped where the red fern grows in, in grade school. You know what? I don't like boy with dog books. So you know what? The dog always dies. The dog always... <laughs> well, if you, don't, if you didn't go through fourth grade and don't know that, too bad for you. So we've kind of, we've kind of touched on this topic briefly, but... I've heard people complain in classes or just, you know, in the writing community that that poetry and prose, the line between them can sometimes be really shaky. Um, so, so how can authors walk the line between poetry and lyrical writing? Is there any crossover there? Any takeaways that can apply to both? There is certainly some crossover. I mean, if you want to see if, if you want to see how much crossover read On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong, who is um just one of my favorite poets on earth and now one of my favorite novelists. I mean, he really writes what is essentially a novel length poem. I mean, it, it the line between poetry and prose is so thin there uh, in the best possible way. Same with The English Patient by Michael Ondaatje, also one of my favorite poets, one of my favorite novelists. His novels are all so intensely poetic and so intensely beautiful. Uh, and again, very thin line between poetry and prose there. Um, I, I, I think what you have to do in a novel where you have that thin line is you just have to, you just have to dole it out carefully. You don't want, I think, your reader to be reading pages and pages of kind of ungrounded, unconcrete, abstract poetry. You know what I mean? I think you do have to continue moving the action forward. You do have to continue developing characters, but you just sprinkle in the poetry here and there. And I think that's, uh, I think that's the way you got to do it. That's really good advice. Um, it's almost like, like you're pulling from the same toolkit for both, but it's the structure and the amount. So I, I like what you said there. We're about out of time for this portion of the podcast. Does anybody have any final thoughts they want to share before we move on to the critique? Okay, awesome. We're going to go ahead and move on to the portion of the show where we critique an audience submission. If you'd like to check out the text of this submission and see all of our notes, you can view that on our website at litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. A quick summary of this week's chapter. Safety-obsessed high school senior Gary deals with the difficulties his obsession causes for his mom and others around him. What are some things we liked? So there, there was quite a bit I liked about this uh, and quite a lot. The, the main thing, and, and I think y'all are going to say this too, is I loved the voice of what I read. Here's why this is so, so, so important. Because A, voice is not something that can be taught. I don't think that, that you can learn to write um, with a voice. What I think you can learn to do, and this is, this is how I teach voice, you can learn to make conscious choices in your writing. I always say voice is choice, okay? So the voice of a novel arises from every, it's the aggregation of all the choices you make throughout a book on a sentence level, on a word level, on a um, description level. So there are some really fantastic choices being made in this. And and see, if you're not making choices from the from the first letter of your novel, 
it's really hard to go back in and retroactively make choices. It's like trying to add a basement to a house after you've already built the house. It's like, no ba oh, we, whoops, we forgot the basement. Now we got to go add the basement. Well, it's a little hard to do that after you've already built the house. And that's what voice is like. It's very hard to reverse engineer a, bo a voice back into the book because it's just choices and choices and choices, making choices on every on every level and everybody's choices are going to be different right so that's what adds up to the unique voice of a novel so uh, that was really really good that that was in there from the outset and and frankly I liked um, most of the choices that were going on there there were some really fun parts I'm gonna pull it up here so if I'm not looking in the camera I'm looking at the, the manuscript um, but there were just some really funny specifics like a a Swedish meatball eating contest on a whim. I love that. Okay, that's a really funny specific, right? They could have just said reckless or unnecessary behavior like jumping off a balcony into a hotel swimming pool. And if they end it there, okay. But they go to the next step and add the Swedish meatball eating contest, uh, which is, a, to me, just a very funny specific. Uh, some other examples... Of, of good voice. Um, here's a nice character choice on, on the first page. This is one that really resonated for me because this, this is the kind of line that, that I, would, I would love to write. And I can't help but wonder how many of my fellow students I'm going to outlive. That's such a simple character choice at that moment. Um, but in that one sentence, you are showing so much about that character without telling us anything about him. You're showing us uh, about that character. Show don't tell is what they always say, and, and that's really phenomenally done there. I, I think that reflection is amazing. Again, that's part of voice. Um, here's another good one on, on the second page. Uh, that is absolutely a gateway activity to other death wishes disguised as sports like rock climbing or, I don't know, poison snake kissing. Uh, very funny specific to me. I really enjoyed that a lot. I thought that was great. And, and, here, 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 I'm a page and a half into the story, and I'm on board because I'm seeing choices being made, and I like, for the most part, the choices being made. Um, are, are we going to get to critiques, or are we just talking about what we like? Now? Yeah, let's. We can just tie up uh, things we like real fast, and we'll we'll hop on over. Well, I just wanted to add to things we like really quick. Um, I really loved the whole opening line. Jeff already read. Uh, most of it, but it says a popular phrase among people naive enough to assume they'll continue to be not dead for the foreseeable future is that you only live once. Ironically, the statement is usually made moments before taking part in reckless or unnecessary behavior like jumping off a balcony into a hotel swimming pool or entering a Swedish meatball contest on a whim. But I contend that this cliche declaration of ignorance is completely false. Ideally, you live every day. The only thing you do once is die. I just love that as an opening for this book, especially because, uh, like Jeff already says, it says a whole lot about the character. Just, I mean, line after line. And that it does it through the whole submission. Um, there's another line I really liked that said, let's see, uh, he's talking about his stand-up comedy that he does. He says, when people don't laugh, but they just nod and tell you that you're funny, he says, it's essentially like confessing your love to someone only to be told that they like you as a friend. And I just, I, I love all of these too. lines. Just so great. Yeah. That one, that one was great. I loved Gary's interactions with his mom, kind of a, a, a fun twist of the trope. His mom is trying to get him to be less careful and he's trying to get her to be more careful. 
Well, and I especially love that because of all the things it doesn't say, because we know that like, we find out anyway that something horrible has happened to Gary's twin. He's probably dead and the whole family is dealing with trauma. And so I really love that we can sort of see how that is disrupting their family um, in little everyday ways. And so I thought that was another great choice of, of that whole scene. What are some things that could use a second look? Real quick, I just I just uh, found another line that I highlighted that I really loved. A downer of a song leaks slowly through the speakers. I love that image. That's so great and and so descriptive, um, in such a, a interesting, precise way. It would be so easy in that line to say, "A downer of a song plays through the speakers quietly," but the choice is leaks slowly through the speakers, which is a great choice. And I love to see choices like that being made, certainly on a sentence level. Um, if if I had one critique about this book, it's greatest strength, uh, about what I've seen, it's greatest strength is also um, it, it maybe its biggest weakness, which is, I think the voice needs to be dialed down from like an 11.5 to a 10, right? So, um, so for example, there are there there are some instances where where double negatives are used for for the purpose of voice. Naive enough to assume they'll continue to not be dead for the foreseeable mm-hmm. future is that you only live once. I think that's a great line. I'd just tweak it to remove the double negative because it's a little too many choices being made in the first line. Um, there are a few occasions throughout here where something is described maybe just like one beat too long, one sentence too long. Um, I would dial that back just a little bit. This is a good problem to have. This is so much better a problem to have than not making enough choices from the outset because that is so much harder to fix. It is so easy to cut a descriptive paragraph down from three sentences to two, you know, or or to cut, you know, two or three jokes from from uh, from a sentence that only needs one instead of four. Um, so that would be my main thing is is look for opportunities to dial the voice back just a bit because it can get exhausting reading too much voice. I've read books that had a little too much voice and it's like, all right, cal- calm down just a little bit. Like, all right, we, we get it. You're smart and you're funny. Just calm down a little bit. So, and and again, I think this is very close to... Uh, to being there. If, if I were reading, honestly, if I were reading these, these pages in a published book, I wouldn't bat an eye. I think this is, this is publishable work. Is it there right at this moment? No, but it is not far off in my opinion. I don't know where the rest of the book goes, if it holds together, if it keeps, keeps going, but, but this is, you can tell when somebody knows how to write, right? And, and whoever wrote this knows how to write. It's just a matter of, of dialing it back. One other thing, and again, this it's funny because this is one of the greatest strengths and the greatest weaknesses, the names of the characters. Now, this may sound like a small thing, but to me, it's always a really big deal. To me, this is what makes the difference between having characters that feel like real people and having Uncanny Valley Polar Express characters, right? Like in the movie Polar Express, where the people kind of look human, but not really. They kind of have dead eyes and their kind of mouths don't move quite right. So you, you got to give your characters the right names that feel real. Otherwise, you get kind of this uncanny valley effect. So there are some, and, and I see a lot of anachronistic names in YA. I see a lot of 
um, teenagers in the year 2021 being named things like Susan and Jennifer and Bill, and uh, in this case, Gary. I, I want you to think about when the last time was that you met a baby named Gary, okay? There has not been a baby Gary born since 1972. And Gary, if he's a teenager in this in this book, would have to be born in like 2006. How many baby Garys did you meet in 2006? And also his twin is named Hazen. So these are my kids, Hazen and Gary. I, I marked that too. <laughs> I, 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 no, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> can't be named Gary. I'm sorry. Or if he is, there's got to be a really good explanation that is offered really early on. Um, the other names are great, though. Like we've got a Kendall. That's that's a perfectly uh, appropriate name for the year 2021. There are lots of Kendalls out there. There's a, a Ronnie spelled R-O-N-Y. Hey, perfectly appropriate. Like a name that's kind of like a normal name, but spelled in a funny way. That feels very 2021 to me. Um, Hazen, as, a, as, as the twin's name, that feels very real to me. I just think that Gary needs a second look. Now, maybe there you get into it and there's a really, really good reason for the Gary and you might be able to persuade me. But otherwise, it feels like, like an intensely anachronistic name and it does pull me out of what is otherwise some really, really delightful and profound and uh, cool opening pages. I had a note on the very beginning. Um, it's very Boise, love that, uh, as Hasman had said. But um, I almost wish that we could get some more grounding details about Gary Sooner. We don't, we don't find out, you know, his gender or his name or kind of even his situation really until um, a few pages in. So for the first few pages, I just felt like a little bit floaty. I think the one that bugged me was not knowing, like I, Kristen mentioned in her outline that she thought that Gary was a girl for the first four pages and I was in that same boat. And so unless you're trying to make gender, like, like not expressing gender a statement in your book, like I would, I would give that pretty quick. So that's funny that y'all say that because I instantly assumed Gary was a boy. I, I just felt boy energy from Gary, which... I mean, what, eight, probably 80 to 90% of YA is, is girl main characters, right? So if I'm reading a contemporary YA, there's like a 10% chance we're going to be dealing with a guy. And yet I knew, I, if I had come to the part where Gary identifies himself and it had been a girl, I would have been shocked. I would have been like, wow, because I got such boy energy off Gary. So that, that's interesting that, that, um, that, that we differed on that. I just had one other note. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Just even until we got, until his mom said his name, I was like, yeah, this is this main character. Uh, she's got a girlfriend. Everything's great. Like I was just, I was so focused on it, but that's really funny. I mean, hey, it, look, if 75% of your readers are, are, are not, getting, not getting it, then you, you probably need to make the change. I have a rule uh, with my manuscripts. If one person tells me something needs to change, uh, maybe it needs to change. If three people tell me something needs to change, it needs to change. It's a good rule. My last note on this, on this chapter was I loved, again, getting to spend time with Gary, getting to see where he was. But it almost felt to me like the inciting incident was a little bit delayed. Um, I guess I couldn't tell what, what the conflict was. And we get some hints at it with um, 
something terrible having happened to Gary's twin. But what did you guys think? I know uh, Kristen and Caitlin, you had some notes on on what has happened to his twin. I actually, I didn't have a problem with waiting for an inciting incident in this instance because I was enjoying everything that we were getting so much and it was making so many good promises about it. So I would be willing to wait more more pages for like something to really happen just because the author has earned trust with me. Um, so I, I guess that's my feeling about that. That's kind of how I felt too is... Uh... I felt like there were enough breadcrumbs there to keep me turning pages. Now, I will say me me thinking something is enough to keep turning pages is not always the best thing because if I I will follow a great voice anywhere. I love a great voice, um, and, and this has a great voice. And so I would follow this great voice even with very low stakes. There were enough stakes for me, but I'm not the most demanding reader when it comes from stakes, and I'm not the most you know, stakes-filled writer. I, I get a lot of people telling me that the first, you know, 50 pages of my books are slow and not much happens. And I'm very character-driven. I'm very voice-driven. And I'm attracted to very character and voice-driven stuff. So could both be right. I mean, um, it could both need more in the way of stakes and inciting incident. Um, and yet, for readers like me, it's it, it's working. So just something to consider. You can never go wrong adding stakes, I feel like. You, nobody ever says, ah, there's too much at stake in those first five pages. Just dial it back. You're, you're never going to go wrong doing that. You don't want to, like, shoehorn them in and, like, hammer them, you know, uh, square peg into round hole, but, you know. I, I feel like I'm in the same camp because, um, I mean, the first paragraph tells us exactly what kind of book this is going to be and it's not going to be the kind where like people are chasing each other in the street and jumping off of cliffs this is going to be a very introspective thoughtful philosophical book philosophical book i wish i could say words i do think it went a little bit slow but it's for the reason we talked about earlier i feel like there's just a little bit too much voice and that if it just was paired back a little bit it would move a little faster and then i wouldn't have that problem that's our time for today does anybody have any final thoughts all right, then thank you so much to this author for submitting. We loved reading your work. Um, listeners, if you'd like your chapter critiqued on our next show, get us your work by August 12th. And Jeff, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. This was an honor. It's been great to chat with you. Be sure to check out In the Wildlight, which just barely hit shelves or will have by the time this recording is published. If you like what you've heard, please check out our new Patreon page where you can get bonus content like hot seat critiques, early episode access, and a writing group experience with Lit Service crew members. It takes a whole team of creatives to make Lit Service, and patrons help us keep going. Thank you to all of you who have already become patrons and are keeping us on the air. Thanks to our assistant, Chelsea Mortensen, who does all our social media, and Craig Harris, who's on sound design. We couldn't do the podcast without them. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and review the podcast. It helps us grow. Thanks for listening to Lit Service. We'll see you in two weeks.